But you veterans here know the drill for those who are new to this. So we're going to wait just about 20, 30 seconds while everyone joins the webinar. All right. <clears throat> I think we have a quorum, as I like to say. Uh, welcome, everyone, to another virtual briefing of the Claremont Institute. I'm your host of these, Ryan Williams, president of the Claremont Institute, publisher of the Claremont Review Books and the American Mind. Uh, very happy to have uh, a friend and also a colleague join us today to discuss uh, the latest developments in diversity, equity, and inclusion, discrimination, as we like to say, uh, the topics of critical race theory and and others that have cropped up in the news lately. Uh, I'm gonna we're gonna have just some introductory remarks from William Jacobson and Scott Yenner. Uh, let me introduce Bill first. Uh, William Jacobson is the clinical professor of law and director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell Law School. Uh, he's the founder of Legal Insurrection Foundation, and before that, the Legal Insurrection uh, blog or website. Uh, they run criticalrace.org, which is a clearinghouse for uh, critical race in education, um, statistics, reports, and all the rest, and equalprotect.org. Uh, our other guest today is Scott Yenner. Uh, he's my colleague at the Claremont Institute. He's our senior director of state coalitions based in Tallahassee. As I like to joke, uh, he's Claremont's Florida man. Uh, he's coming <laughs> to us live from Tallahassee. Uh, uh, Scott's normal day job is at Boise State University, uh, where he and his family live in, in Idaho. But these days he's uh, in Florida at least half the month working on issues like diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, critical race theory, and all the rest in higher education and on other topics, both with uh, legislators in Florida, but also with others in places like Texas, uh, Tennessee, North Carolina, Alabama, et cetera. So uh, thank you both for joining me, gentlemen. And um I think, yeah, the introductory remarks, we've gotten a lot of questions ahead of time. So I think we'll easily fill this hour by taking questions I've received ahead of time and then people asking questions uh, in the Q&A. If you want to ask a question, just click on Q&A and you can feed it into the queue. But so with that, I think we will start with uh, Bill Jacobson. Uh, thank you so much, Ryan. And thank you for inviting me and having me here. Uh, thank you also to Scott and thank you to the Claremont Institute, which is so important in protecting our freedoms in this country. They're really a model for little entities like Legal Insurrection Foundation um, who aspire to uh, do the great sort of stuff Claremont is doing. So thank you for inviting me to participate in this. Um, so Legal Insurrection Foundation, most people know us through the Legal Insurrection blog, which I started as a solo blog in 2008. And we're now Legal Insurrection Foundation. We still have the blog, but as Ryan mentioned, our fight against DEI, which is ongoing, really, uh, I think, came into focus with criticalrace.org, where in the frenzy of the summer of 2020, we decided we needed to start to catalog how deeply critical race theory and its variants had penetrated into higher education and to uh, a lesser extent for what we do, K through 12, although it K through 12 is usually important. So criticalrace.org is an entity which is a series of interactive databases covering over 500 colleges and universities, all 155 US medical schools, or maybe it's 156 uh, veterinary schools, US military academies. Um, and we have a couple of other databases as well. Elite K through 12 is one of them. And so what we do, we've cataloged it. And I think this topic of the fight against DEI, the continuing fight, people need to understand how deeply penetrated this racialized ideology is throughout academia. Really, from it started in the colleges and the universities, it's in the medical schools. The medical schools are the worst of all. It's really disgusting what's going on there with DEI. Uh, it's obviously in law schools uh, and it's all the way down into K through 12 now. So people need to understand this was not something that just happened overnight. It, you know, a lot of it came to the forefront with the George Floyd death and then the riots and all of that and Black Lives Matter. But this has been 
two generations, at least two generations in the making. Uh, talk about capture of institutions. So the fight of, about DEI in many ways is trying to recapture the institutions that have been lost to this pernicious ideology. Uh, and so that's what we do at criticalrace.org. But we got so many tips and so many complaints about what was happening. This year, we launched Equal Protection Project, which is equalprotect.org. So we're now filing legal claims against mostly education-related entities where we find these discriminatory programs done in the name of DEI. So uh, equalprotect.org is really focused on fighting DEI discrimination uh, through legal means as well as public relations and publicity. So we, we understand what's going on very well. And it's, it's something that's going to have to be a generational fight. And it's great to have you know, partners like Claremont and others who are joining in this fight. But nobody should think there's one quick, easy answer. You know, The topic tonight is what comes next. And what comes next is a lot of what we've seen in academia. Then this all started in academia. It's now in corporations and elsewhere, but it all started on campuses. It's just with the Supreme Court's affirmative action ruling, it's just gonna be pushed underground. They're not gonna end the discrimination. What they're gonna do is try to hide the evidence of the discrimination. And we're seeing that already. They're eliminating SAT scores. I mean, the primary evidence in the Harvard case for the Asian students showing discrimination was the, S the disparity in SAT scores that you needed to get accepted to Harvard if you were Asian versus if you were black or Hispanic or even white. Uh, and so they're gonna eliminate that evidence, but they're not gonna eliminate the practices. They're gonna now ask students essays to talk about your experience. Tell us how you're gonna help them um, you know, with diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're not gonna ask you your race, but they're gonna invite you to volunteer that information. Uh, and there's also something else going on that we're beginning to focus on, which is the use of algorithms. Cornell just announced that it was going to start to use algorithms for its admissions. And well, what are they going to search for with the algorithms? They're going to search for keywords and other factors that will allow them to accomplish the quotas that they want without having to admit it. So I think that the battle, the Supreme, a lot of people say, oh, the Supreme Court ended affirmative action. Well, no, it didn't. It, it ended it maybe legally, but on the ground in the, you know, the space that Claremont and legal insurrection operate. It hasn't ended at all. It's just going deeper underground and it's taking on new names and new titles. And, and that's what we're gonna see. So I know there are a lot of questions and I don't wanna take up too much time, but that's what we have to focus on. It's gonna make our job more difficult at criticalrace.org and equalprotect.org because the low hanging fruit is not gonna be there. Colleges put all the stuff on the websites and we have researchers who just spend their days going through university websites, but that's not gonna be possible anymore. They're gonna take all the stuff down from the websites and then they're gonna pretend that it's not happening. So we're gonna have to rely on, on deeper research. And that's what we're looking forward to in the next fight. And there were many other aspects of that fight that um, legislative, et cetera, that I'm sure we'll get into. So thank you for having me on. And you know, I look forward along with the others to answering some of the questions that people have. Oh, thank you, Bill, and thanks for all the great work you all do. Um, your databases are indispensable, so uh, I encourage everyone to go to criticalrace.org and, and equalprotect.org. Um, Scott, would you give us uh, the latest from Florida and all your other activities? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, first of all, I think uh, that you know the people on our side uh, who are skeptical of the diversity, equity, inclusion industry and the way it has corrupted the academy and corporations and uh, the uh, NGO archipelago around the country are coming to see that it has a pretty tight relationship uh, with laws uh, that the United States has passed and interpreted uh, over the last 50 plus years. Um, um, our colleague at Claremont Institute, uh, Christopher, uh, Christopher Caldwell, wrote a great book, uh, The Age of Entitlement, uh, that was really on the Civil Rights Act and how it has implications uh, and almost demands, uh, at least after a certain uh, passage of time, the kind of practices that we're now seeing on universities. And that whole thing is being revisited by a lot of scholars now. Um, there's a new book out by a friend of Claremont, Tom Powers, called American Multiculturalism and the Anti-Discrimination Regime. It's just out like last week. 
that really shows how the approach to civil rights uh, that we've taken in the country has real profound implications for how we educate and how our institutions are designed. Uh, Tom calls uh, the civil rights regime architectonic in the book, that it, it really creates a whole new thing, a whole new like approach to life uh, within our country. And this is like becoming obvious now. It wasn't obvious uh, when these laws uh, were being interpreted by the courts and passed by Congress, but it is being like more obvious now. And now we have like a full grown monster in our midst. And the affirmative action regime is only really part of it. And, uh, and if we use Florida as a kind of blueprint uh, for how to fight the DEI regime, uh, we see we can see some of the things that they've done and some of the problems that they're going to have in fighting it. And it's not dissimilar to what Bill has said about affirmative action, uh, but it's like just different iterations of the same thing. Uh, what is happening is Florida has done, I think, three important things that no state has tried to do uh, all in tandem. One is it has uh, abolished the use of diversity, equity, inclusion statements in hiring. So uh, often job descriptions will, or job uh, announcements would require candidates not only to sit there, uh, submit their vitas and their research, but also a statement about how they're gonna promote diversity, equity, inclusion in the unit. Another thing that Florida did is ban the diversity, equity, inclusion offices. There cannot be offices now in Florida, any of the colleges, any of the universities dedicated to promoting political activism, and dividing people upon the basis of race. And the third thing Florida has done is that they have banned mandatory trainings. So uh, in DEI, um, so students don't have required trainings when they come in freshman orientation. Search committees do not have mandatory diversity, equity, inclusion training to expose their biases before they go about uh, job searches. And all this law, all these three things went into effect in July of this year. And what we've already seen is that they're hiding the football in each of these cases. Um, instead of having diversity, equity, and DEI statements, uh, they're looking for, do the candidates do the diversity work on their VIDAs? And they use rubrics uh, to evaluate candidates uh, on the basis of diversity, equity, inclusion. It's, but they're not using DEI statements. Like technically they're obeying the letter of the law, but violating the spirit. When it comes to the DEI offices, they're rebranding them. Uh, instead of a vice provost for uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, they have a vice provost for community engagement and belonging. Sounds kind of like the same words, but they rebrand them all over. Uh, this happens at the, at the college level. It happens at the university level. And then, you know, they do training, but uh, it's not mandatory. And it's just that if you want to be on a search committee, you have to take these, the training and it's all diversity, equity, inclusion training, but no one is coerced into being on a search committee. So they interpret it like that. And, uh, and so they're up against a very big problem of whack-a-mole where they think that they have done something important but now they have to, at the ground level, try to pound out these offices and defund them and find willing allies in school administrations and at board of regents levels uh, that are interested in both identifying these things and in, in like obeying the law, both in letter and spirit and getting rid of them. And it's gonna be, as Bill said, it's gonna be a long slog that requires tons of oversight. And I think, um, you know, one of the lessons is that, uh, that, and I know that they're learning this down here in Florida, is that not only banning things, but actually trying to redefine what the universities are about is an important element of actually winning this battle. So uh, what they've done here in Florida, uh, and we've been, you know, kind of involved in this, is, uh, is, redefine the general ed so that they're dictating to the universities what their core classes have to be about, even to the point where they're like making syllabi in the Department of Ed 
and uh, and saying that this is the syllabus that you're going to be using. So one thing that is like at least being undertaken now is a revamping of curriculum at universities. They're also becoming interested in uh, at least their law, I should say, allows them at the next stage to be involved in program evaluation so that they can identify programs that are on the universities that are inconsistent with its purpose and have like political activism sewn into the nature of the disciplines. And then like they won't have a space on the university uh, if they are activist departments. And there are more than a few of those. Uh, and they don't all end in the word studies, um, but some of them do. And so I think that's kind of the next wave that is going on here. The difficulty of playing whack-a-mole with the diversity, equity, inclusion regime, whether it's on the affirmative action front or on the office front or on the training front, is leading people to recognize that there needs to be political control exerted over some of these processes and, uh, and, uh, and outcomes, processes dictated to the universities as public universities uh, through state authorities. And, uh, and I think that's kind of the next stage of what's gonna happen here in Florida. And I can like define what that means uh, just a little bit and then we can take questions. Um, it's one thing to ban affirmative action. It's another thing to define how admissions should be done. And like what colorblind admissions need to look like and you know, I think that's something that's going to be undertaken here in the next year, um, where they say like we're going to require that you have SAT, ACT, and GPAs in the admission process. And if there are people, if there are racial disparities that are pretty profound, um, using those criteria, if blacks have much lower admission standards than whites, then whites have causes for action, or those who are discriminated against have causes for action. So I look forward to the day when uh, those with the authority can impose on the universities an understanding of what admissions will look like. Because I think that's really the next stage in the battle of, against affirmative action, not trying to identify the ban and enforce the ban, but actually dictate uh, through you know, government institutions what admissions should look like. And with that, I uh, I yield back the balance of my time, and uh, I'll be happy to take questions about it. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Uh, we've got eight or so already digital, but I had some print questions that came in ahead of time, or at least by email. Um, Suzanne asked actually a few a few questions, and a few of them you answered. Uh, and just to paraphrase, she was wondering how you solve this problem of of a lot of these colleges as you say, hide the hiding the ball, uh, appearing to to comport with the letter of law and dismantle some DEI stuff, but really shuffling it off into a different aspect. I think you made the case that you just need to be a lot more positive and proactive about defining a lot of these things and narrowing the avenues through which they can uh, avoid the consequences and uh, the new legislation. But she also asks, this is no, I know something you're familiar with, Scott, and uh, Bill might have something to add too, but she, she writes, I live in Oklahoma, a ruby red state, yet our supermajority of lawmakers do not understand the powerful activism behind DEI. How do we convince legislators of the real harm of it and how to act on it? Well, I mean, I think this is where Bill's work at Legal Insurrection and some of the stuff that we've done in writing reports on what happens in various universities are important. I mean, it's not, it's not the only part, only thing that's important. Um, but the first thing that has to be done is they have to be shown that there is a problem. So you can do that by cataloging incidents and policies and curriculum and administrators who are dedicated to these things. And then like try to persuade a majority of legislators to act on it. And uh, you know, last year, and Bill might have better numbers than this, this is according to the Chronicle of Higher Education, there were 40 bills dealing with DEI introduced in 22 different states. So 40 bills, seven passed, not a great batting average. And, uh, and so, you know, I think the first step 
in you know convincing uh, red state, including deep red state legislators, to act is to is to inform. And that, like, if they're not asking the question, then someone outside has to do it. Yeah, I think what we have to understand is that this is a cultural fight, not just an operational fight. There is not a culture on campuses of valuing the individual. Uh, it's all focused on group identity. And so I, I think there needs to be a, a cultural fight as well on campuses uh, to, to get people to understand that DEI is an ideology. It is not the default position. In fact, Historically, it's the opposite of what the American ideal is, which is the individual. DEI is a group identity ideology. And when you, but if you see how they act, the administrators on campuses is like, how could you possibly be against DEI? That's not ideological. Only the people who criticize it are ideological. So I, I think there needs to be a, a, a real, you know, educational push it's not going to come from on campus it's going to have to come from off campus to educate people that what has taken over the campuses and now the corporations is is not our tradition in fact it's contrary to our tradition so there's no one answer to all this operationally yes you got to eliminate departments i think desantis had it right you defund that's part of the answer, but it's not the entirety of the answer because the ideology is so deeply entrenched. Yeah. Have you, you guys had any, uh, either of you, any sort of a follow-up question from a different questioner? Uh, Douglas asks a very related question to what you ended on, Bill, which is, um, you know, how do you, what are the, what are some successful educational or rhetorical efforts and responses to people who think that DEI is just the latest noble extension of the civil rights regime. Well, I, again, it's got to come from off campus and there has to be, I mean, I have seen some groups do it, but it, you know, it, you're up against the power of the university. And I think alumni, I know on many campuses, there have been alumni free speech groups formed. I know there's one at Cornell, which has I think it's had a, a significant impact. So it's an all hands on deck sort of thing. Uh, the parents need to get involved. The and long before you ship your kid off to college, and uh, the alumni need to get involved. The one people you cannot count on to diversify the viewpoint on campuses are the faculty or the administrators. They are a hundred percent on board with this almost every place at least every place that I've seen. Uh, and so I think you just, from all angles, you have to try to educate kids to the fact that group identity is not the answer, but there's no one program that can do that. Yeah, one of the things that uh, we have done in our reports is, um, is, is try to show people that like what they say diversity means and then what diversity really means. <laughs> And, you know, they say diversity is equal opportunity for all or something like that. And what it really ends up meaning is fewer of the, you know, like disfavored groups on campus. Uh, the NBA, they say, is the most diverse sports league. Um, and what that ends up meaning, meaning is like it's mostly minorities and fewer whites. And it gets more diverse every year if there are fewer. But it's harsh to say these things, but that's what diversity really means, like operationally. What does equity mean? Well, they say everyone gets a chance. That's what it means. What it really means is equal outcomes uh, or, you know, like uh, the per percentage of blacks or women in the population is equal to the percentage of blacks or women in your college or in your discipline or at the university. So, you know, like, trying to educate people to be skeptical of the high ideals so-called that are represented in the DEI regime and seeing them for the group identity and the extensions of tyrannical control that they end up requiring um, is like, I think the politically indispensable thing and the culturally indispensable thing uh, for fighting it. Yeah, I have uh, one more very practical question from the emails, and then we'll get to the digital questions here. Uh, Shane uh, asks, he, he says he's just started 
teaching at a community college in Colorado. And, uh, you know, he needs to do all this DEI training and wonders if there's any way to plausibly push back against what is essentially an indoctrination program, or if there are any resources out there that could help him figure out how to navigate that problem or that thicket. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think there are some groups fighting those battles. They're really, in many ways, free speech battles, particularly if you're at a public university. Uh, and so, uh, but there's a personal price to be paid. And, and I, as somebody who's come under those sort of attacks, I never criticize somebody who um, makes the choice not to speak out because you could lose your job. Uh, it would be hard to get rehired. So I totally understand that. Uh, but if you're not willing to push back, then, you know, maybe find other ways, get involved in groups that you can help out at um, support groups that are doing this work, but don't just do nothing, do what your comfort level is. And, you know, I never forget that, you know, a lot of people um, don't have the option of speaking out at work. And, and that's, you know, a, a real problem. So uh, in terms of refusing to take the DEI test or refusing to attend the, the struggle sessions, I, I think that's a personal option. I don't say you should, you shouldn't, but you should at least understand that there can be career consequences to that. And, and each person needs to decide whether they're willing to take that risk or not. Yeah, and I'll, I mean, I just want to operationalize something that uh, Bill said. Um, the the line that can't be crossed uh, in these trainings is the doctrine of what they call coerced speech, where you are forced to say or forced to say you believe something that is not like what you believe. And um, I had like a training at Boise State where at the end we had to sign a pledge to adhere to the policies that they were putting forward in this training. And I like took snapshots of it. I sent it to the uh, the person who's in charge of HR. And I said, this is coerced speech. Like, I'll listen to your training. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to like pledge anything about it. And they immediately said, you are now exempt from training for seven years. Like, <laughs> all victory. Um, and I think I'll never be taking that training again because um, uh, because they're kind of worried about me being able to record it, which I did, of course, and publicized it and uh, and, you know, showed it to the state board and showed it to the legislature. Um, but I totally agree with what Bill said. Like, I'm a tenured professor. I can lose my job, too. I mean, but the, the chances are less likely. And uh, and everyone should make their own decision and there's no reason to run alone at a machine gun nest that's pointed at you. So, uh, you know, people should be prudent and recognize the costs that come with doing such things. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, one of our former fellows, Adam asks, uh, and, uh, you know, either, either of you guys can take this, Bill might <clears throat> know some of the jurisprudence a little better, but I'm not sure. Why is it that no court or legislature can seem to put together a ruling or policy that actually stops these university policies? Obviously, the universities are looking for loopholes, but it often seems that the rulings, Supreme Court or policies, SB 17 in Texas, are deliberately crafted to have loopholes. Well, the, the Supreme Court decision in the Students for Fair Admissions case, the Harvard case, um, you know, you're reading through and it's like, this is great. This is great. This is wonderful. And then there's one sentence thrown in there. It might even be in the last paragraph or the second to last paragraph, which says, you know, but of course nothing, you know, here prevents, you know, schools from taking into account students' personal experiences with race and with racism uh, by essays or, or similar things. Uh, I've, I'm paraphrasing what they said. And the schools have just driven a truck right through that little loophole, that little opening. And all the schools now are beginning to ask essays. They don't say in the essay, you know, tell us what your race is. But they say in the essay things like, well, you know, if if you have had a particular experience with racism, you know, feel free to tell us about it. If you um, feel you would add to 
diversity, equity, and inclusion being one of the values of our university, uh, please tell us how you would help add to that value. That's I'm paraphrasing a question that Cornell is now going to start asking its applicants. It was just announced a few days ago as part of a report that they adopted. And I think I've paraphrased it pretty accurately. So, you know, talk about, yes, things being written. And then there's a loophole. That Supreme Court decision is a, a massive loophole that the colleges, I mean, Harvard in a very smug way, immediately, like within minutes, tweeted out that, you know, that sentence from the Supreme Court decision and said, Oh, by all means, we will follow what the Supreme Court wants us to do. Again, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's very, very frustrating that you can't just get a clean piece of legislation or a clean judicial decision. Uh, and, you know, that's why great decision by the Supreme Court, but they left that opening. It's very frustrating. Yeah, and I, I, I just want to speak to the law problem uh, that Bill is talking about. So aside from the Supreme Court decision, um, many of these laws, you know, they ban diversity, equity, inclusion offices. They ban offices that are dedicated to activism. And then they administrators come down and they have to go about defining what a diversity office is, what an equity office is, what an inclusion office is, and what an activism uh, uh, promoting office would look like. And, you know, these are more difficult things to do. And it, this is what makes it easier to hide the football. Um, but I would just say that, like, it doesn't stop the left from doing it. Um, and they they have a vague phrase. And suddenly everyone from J6 is like serving 23 years for what? Parading. And like, it just requires a kind of political will to overcome that uh, that vagueness and fire people, defund things, and uh, make examples of institutions that are openly but defying the spirit of the law that has been passed. And uh, and I, you know, I have great like I love the rule of law. I'm big in favor of the rule of law, and uh, that requires identifying. Um, uh, the things that the law bans or defunds and then defunding them. And if there's defiance, then there needs to be consequences and, uh, and not being shy about implementing those consequences is I think what needs to be done. So it's actually a really difficult job to ban these things. I think there's no perfect way of doing it. There needs to be laws combined with the will to execute them. Yeah. That's right. Um, I, we have a question from, we, we get a great audiences here at Claremont. We have a question from Eric Kaufman, uh, who's written a lot about this. Uh, if you all don't know his work, uh, his latest book is a, a big, very interesting book called White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. And it's it's about not just America, but the West uh, more generally. But Eric asks, can you set up a dedicated office to investigate universities with powers to fine, as well as issue best practice executive guidance on how universities must conduct admissions and what content is out of bounds in fine detail using examples. And then he cites, you know, in Britain, obviously the parliamentary system's a little, uh, uh, makes the top-down action a lot easier in Britain, uh, of course, than in the United States. But he says, in Britain, we have an academic freedom directorate with 10 staff and universities have a duty to promote as well as to protect academic freedom and then Azar has the power to issue fines and guidance that they must follow. And they have ombudsman powers. Um, obviously, our federal government can't really do that. But uh, what, what do you guys have by way of response to that? Well, I always get very nervous when we give the federal government the power <laughs> to fine people <laughs> and to yeah. investigate people. So, yeah, I'm I'm. It's a frustrating situation we're in because on the one hand, we want academic freedom, we want free speech, but we're also facing a situation where that's been completely abused throughout academia uh, and increasingly in uh, cultural institutions, you know, social media, et cetera. So it's a tough situation. So I would prefer that there not be a government, at, certainly at the federal level, investigative unit to uh, decide what is acceptable conduct. I mean, to some extent, we do have the U.S. Department of Education, so they they can investigate, but they should really only be investigating violations of law, not 
best practices and things like that. Uh, so yeah, it's a conundrum. I probably would not want to see that sort of board at the federal level. Uh, certainly, you can't find people without you know some level of due process. I think again, a lot of this is a cultural issue, and you know we've got to fight that at at every level. But I, I don't think I'd like a federal board to do that. Yeah, uh, th thanks for that question, Eric. I mean, I'll I'll take the state part of the answer um, because. The way that American universities are, you know, there's a diverse uh, array of ways that state system, university systems are organized. Here in Florida, for instance, each university has a board of trustees. And the board of trustees can do exactly what you're saying. And they are, in some cases, doing exactly what you're saying. They're acting as that third party. Uh, there is a tip line and uh, for violations that end up being reported to the trustees. Um, the thing that makes that work is that they have been very intentional over the last five years about their appointments to the board of trustees. So they put people who are allies, who are interested in promoting uh, Governor DeSantis's agenda into these spots so that they often have pretty responsible people who are on board with the program, the spirit of the program, uh, implementing um, the oversight of the institutions. And they do also do this at the um, at the state level, both through the uh, Department of Education, which oversees the college system, and through the higher, you know, the university system here. So, um, but they haven't done a formal law here like they did in Britain, I think is what you're describing, Eric. And, uh, and I do think that that would you know, like they, they fund the universities, they charter the universities, uh, they dictate to some extent what the public purposes of the universities are. And I think ensuring that they accomplish those public purposes would be the job of such a standing committee. Yeah. Uh, David asks, when will we see class action suits representing white faculty, staff, students against state universities uh, for the millions of dollars of taxpayer money, taxpayer money spent on all the other race and gender combinations through DEI. Um, so that, that's his question. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what the, the legal claim would be there. Um, yeah. You know, you would, the spending of money for something you don't like doesn't necessarily give you a claim to that money. Um, so I think you would have to show some level of discrimination. Uh, and that's, you know, what a lot of the claims that we have filed is where you have like a scholarship or a summer internship only open to non-whites. We found one that was one program that was open only to whites. Uh, and we filed a claim about that. So we'll file a claim about any discrimination. But uh, I, I don't think the mere funding of some things in, versus other things is going to give rise to it to a claim. Um, but if you find a specific program that does it, you can file a claim over that. Yeah. The, the spirit of the question is good uh, in the sense that I think um, whether it's this or probably even more relevant, um, you know, this, this sort of trans madness, especially with kids and a lot of uh, people who regret having surgery at 16, uh, et cetera, you know, getting the trial bar involved and marrying the the uh, uh, in the incentive to make money for lawyers uh, along with the vindication of of rights and or the uh, raising the cost of these sorts of abuses, I think, would be welcome as much as, uh, of course, trial attorneys are are bad in other ways. Uh, so it's it's an interesting solution. Uh, but as you said, Bill, maybe not immediately apparent how the class would form or argue for damages. Um, Mark Bauerlein asks, what are the prospects for pressuring governors in solid red states to copy, copy Florida's example? Uh, I think probably pretty good. What do you think, Scott? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that Texas got into the banning of DEI offices. Um, I mean, before I mentioned that there were 40 bills in 22 states and seven of them passed, um, and 
But that means that bills were introduced in really ruby red states like Oklahoma and Ohio and Iowa and North Dakota and South Carolina and Alabama and didn't even get to the floor in some of those cases and certainly didn't get to a governor's desk for it to be signed. So um, so the the question is how to overcome, we'll call it the complacency in those particular states uh, to begin acting politically against this monster that they are funding. And uh, and knowing that, uh, that uh, it's gonna be a long fight and there's limits to what can be accomplished because of what the national government is foisting upon the states. And, uh, and so what the prospects are, I think they're better every year. Um, and, uh, and Governor DeSantis' success, uh, his, his uh, you know, resounding re-election, hopefully will show people the avenue toward uh, popular rule uh, on these matters. I mean, one thing to understand, there's this huge divide developing um, in the country, even more so than it has been in the past, um, where the blue states are moving in the wrong direction and the red states are moving in the correct direction. So New York State University System, State University of New York, SUNY, um, this year for the first time introduced mandatory for all freshmen. This is a huge system. There's like 30 campuses or something, maybe more um, uh, of, you know, I forget what they call it, but basically a DEI course. Uh, they may have some other name for it, but that's now mandatory. Uh, so as Florida and a few other states are trying to eliminate that, the blue states are getting even more heavily into it on the campuses. And that presents a choice. You know, if you want your kid or if you're a, a student and you don't want all that nonsense, go to college in Florida or Texas or someplace else. I mean, you'll find it there, as Scott has indicated, but it's not going to be as open and as blatant and as abusive. Um, or come to New York, come to the SUNY schools, come to any of a number of schools in, in New England, uh, and you can get all of it that you want. And I think people need to start making those choices and understanding that there are choices to be made. And, and just like so many people are voting with their feet and leaving blue states for red states, I think you might find students, I hope you'll find students leaving blue colleges for to use a, a term and heading to red colleges. I, and, and, and students need to be aware that those options are out there. I'm going to combine a couple questions um, in the interest of time, one from Jonathan and one from Paul. And the, the questions are, they're, they're very related. One, one is, um, you know, what's the pushback like so far and how do we foresee it moving forward uh, against a lot of these efforts in places like Florida from organizations uh, like the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, uh, Libertarian Free Speech Group, for lack of a better description. Uh, and then the other question is, where where do you all think the courts will come down on the First Amendment question with curriculum guides? Uh, Florida, you know, was had backed away from a few of their more aggressive um, legislative efforts because they were worried about possible court challenges. Um, what do you what do you guys think of those two related questions? Yeah, well, I think people, you know, legislation. I don't think you can merely look at the number of bills because some of them are very poorly drafted some of them may have been spiked not because people got weak need but uh substantively but because they may have gotten opinions this is not going to hold up and it's the worst thing we can do is pass bad poorly worded legislation that gets thrown out because then you've handed the other side a victory so i think you know that is part of the problem that uh, you know, particularly when it comes to First Amendment rights and things like that, we have to be very, very careful to only propose things that we, you can never be certain, but have a high degree of confidence will survive court challenge. Yeah, and I think the the thing that is most likely to survive court challenge is the attempt by state systems of education to dictate what's in the general ed, what acceptable majors are on universities 
what degrees will be granted on the universities, what won't be granted on the universities. It's when um, it's when they kind of go after you know things that are closer to what academic freedom or classroom freedom is. So the one Florida law I think that will be enjoined and not enforced is uh, called the Stop Woke Act, um, which has been okayed in the K through 12. And what the Stop Woke Act, the part that's been enjoined uh, uh, does is it prevents the teaching of so-called so divisive concepts um, as truth. So that white people have a particular nature, that black people have a particular nature that cannot be done in K through 12 education because it's called government speech. But they have enjoined that law uh, in higher ed, like they're not enforcing it right now. And they I don't think they, I don't know that they expect to win. I don't know uh, what the uh, contours of the law and the draws that they're gonna get in you know, appeals courts and such, uh, how that lines up. But, um, you know, the when fire and other libertarian groups complain that the state is um, putting forward standards for what the general ed is going to be, I think they are misunderstanding the purpose of state government and and they're kind of falling for a mid-century American idea that you, we just teach people how to think, not what to think. And we're always teaching people what to think. And the state should weigh in on the question of that by having standards for general ed that aren't purely formal, but actually have substantive con content. We have, um, I'm going to combine a couple other questions uh, into this simplified one, which is how in Florida or elsewhere, um, Scott or Bill, how has the federal rights, federal civil rights bureaucracy started to go after some of this stuff uh, as you all have observed it? I haven't seen very much of it. I haven't seen very much of it. I think uh, Office of Civil Rights for the U.S. Department of Education um, has been okay in some of their evaluations of complaints that have been filed. Obviously, it's, you know, fact dependent. So I think they've mostly played it straight I and mean, they're very slow moving, but I think they have. Uh, but I've not seen any effort by any of the massive agencies devoted towards eliminating discrimination to eliminate what we refer to as DEI discrimination. And that's, you know, that's up to if we ever get, if we ever get another Republican president in our lifetime, um, that's up to that president to make sure he puts the the rules in place because executive orders can be tossed out on a whim with another executive order. But a rule has to go through a rulemaking process and it's very time consuming. And certainly the Biden administration has spent now approaching three years trying to rewrite rules. And sometimes they're successful, sometimes they're not, but it's a long process. So you need to do it the right way. You you know, you know, need to have the right people in place from day one, not 18 months into your administration. And you've got to put those policies in place that have some level of permanency as well as legislation, obviously. Can I do a presenter trick here, Ryan, and ask answer a different question? Am I allowed to do this? Sure. Yeah, go ahead, Scott. Instead of the uh, Office of Civil Rights, let's talk about just the, the United States Department of Education, because they are, you know, like here in Florida, they're a big threat to any reform of the universities, and they do it like this. Uh, the United States Department of Education farms out the job of accrediting universities to some of these very big accreditors. There are six or seven around the country. And uh, and you cannot get federal funds for student loans unless you're uh, approved, your university is approved by some federally approved accreditor. And what the Department of Education does is it uses the accreditors to try to limit the reforms that states are imposing, uh, state governments are using to govern their systems. Um, and that Florida has three lawsuits or three approaches to the uh, uh, the accreditation problem. But right now they have been trying to change accreditors to ones that will allow the reforms that they have uh, in mind. 
And the Department of Education has said, like, you can't change accreditors or you'll lose your Title IV, your student loan uh, funds. So it may not be the Office of Civil Rights right now that is putting a kibosh on what states are doing, but it is the federal bureaucracy operating under orders of the Biden administration that is limiting the freedom of states to govern their own institutions. And they're doing it through this accreditation process that uh, the Trump administration really loosened up um, by allowing universities to change accreditors, to go beyond the region that you're in and use national accreditors or accreditors from different regions. And what the, the Biden administration is saying, you have to stick with your accreditor unless the Department of Education approves you moving. And then they sit on your application to move. And uh, and so this is setting up big fights, um, but not through the Office of Civil Rights. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, <clears throat> uh, J- Jonathan had a uh, follow-up on Eric Kaufman's question. But what about, short of a federal board, maybe a dear colleague letter setting out best practices under Standards for Fair Admissions of Harvard compliance and a requirement that highly selective universities submit a report to the education department explaining how they are complying? Yeah, you know, these dear colleague letters were used with great effect, particularly by the Obama administration. Um, And so you have to control the federal government, you have to get the executive branch. And if you're able to, you know, all methods, um, I, I think, are on the table. Uh, I just don't like the idea of a disciplinary board or the equivalent of a disciplinary board. But yeah, I think you can use the powers of the federal government to implement policies that, you know, are to your, you know, preference. So uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of federal powers that can be used, uh, including things giving interpretations of what various rules and regulations mean. Yeah, and the only, I mean, I agree with that. Uh, I also agree that having a board, you know, like that would be difficult and you need to control the executive, that that seems right. The thing I think that our side should think about is how to define admissions transparency and require admissions transparency from the universities. The reason the Harvard case and the North Carolina case were successful is the charts that showed the admission criteria that were used based on race. Like they're very compelling. And all right, so if Harvard like jettisons the uh, ACT and the SAT and well, how are they making decisions and how did they apply at their universities? And if there's transparency, then there may also be grounds for lawsuits uh, for violation. So I'm not saying that I have the answer to this, but I think that um, any solution to the problem would have to begin with transparency that would yield actionable causes um, if the principles of the Harvard and uh, case were violated. We have a um, anonymous attendee ask, I have some hard evidence that shows my university is hiding the football and complying with these laws. What ways can I publicize this so that the people who have power will do something about it uh, beyond writing just yet another op-ed? <laughs> what state are you in? <laughs> and, um, because, uh, I mean, one of the things that I've been doing is staying in touch with people who are in charge of this. And when I get, uh, that is in the areas of education. And so when I get evidence like that, if it's someplace that I have uh, developed connections, I try to uh, share it with them. And, um, but, you know, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, write another op-ed. And I don't think there's anything wrong with sending it to Bill and getting it up on criticalrace.org, right, Bill? Yeah, I mean, I can't say we accept all submissions. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, we're always looking for stories and there are other publications that are always looking for stories. Um, you've got to have the documentation and the proof uh, and, you know, shining a light on things, you know, sunlight is a disinfectant. I mean, I, I don't know if it's the best disinfectant, but it's a disinfectant. And, you know, we've been um, I saw there was a question in the Q&A about 
what successes have we had in our six months at Equal Protection? And publicity can accomplish a lot. I mean, naming and shaming, University of Minnesota and Missouri State back down from discriminatory programming when we did a media blitz over what they would, were doing and they were embarrassed and they should have been embarrassed because what they were doing was completely indefensible. So, you know, getting publicity can have an impact. Doesn't always, some say, I don't care. Uh, you know, that's mostly in blue states, although Minnesota's, you know, I guess blue, uh, but they cared and, uh, you know, and take it to your congressional representative, you know, uh, a letter from a, you know, representative to the, you know, chancellor of the university system, you know, could have a big impact. And I agree, there's nothing wrong with another op-ed. I mean, that's part of informing people, you know, so I, I wouldn't say don't write the op-ed, write the op-ed and then send the op-ed to your congressman and ask the congressman to write a letter to the university. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, that's good. We've had a couple of questions about social and emotional learning. I know both of you have <clears throat> studied this a bit, but uh, can can we just run through really quickly? What is social and emotional learning and what's its relation to critical race theory and DEI and all the rest? I, I think it's probably best described as the, the gateway drug to all the rest. Um, it, it's, uh, it's ill-defined, but, you know, it, it does open up um, you know, kind of a victim mentality, a, a, an approach to portraying each student as a victim of a system. Uh, and that's how, you know, there are others who know a lot more about it than I do, but that has is frequently described to me as the foot in the door. Okay. That's how they get in because it sounds fine. I mean, social emotional learning, who could be against that? Do you not, you know, like dealing with students' emotions? You know, uh, so that's how it's been described to me. Perhaps Scott knows more of the details, but it's been described to me as the foot in the door. Yeah, um, the way I would put it is that it's a delivery system for the critical theories. And uh, I think C.S. Lewis talked about education as the job of shaping people's affections. And what social emotional learning is, is a way of shaping people's affections in class, through stories, through trauma, through how would you like to be in these shoes kind of things. And in order to shape the affections of people, of, of young students, um, uh, I'm gonna put in the chat box here, um, a report that we did on Florida's education system. The uh, In it, we talk about eight delivery systems for critical theories and transformative social and emotional learning, so-called, is one of these deli uh, delivery systems. And uh, and so it's, we have like two paragraphs on it uh, near the beginning of this. So maybe that'll help. But that's the way I think of it. Shaping the affections intentionally toward the ideology of critical theory. I, I might have just gone to the panelist, Scott. So I'm going to drop it in for everyone just in case. But oh, all right. Yeah, I'm incompetent at that. Yes. Host and panelists. Sorry, guys. <laughs> no, don't worry about it. Um, and you can find all of our reports at dc.claremont.org. Go to the left side and, and click on reports and you'll see all of Scott and his colleague Anna Miller's work. Um, <clears throat> I'm posting that now. So we're pretty much out of time. We like to keep this to an hour. I will just state because uh, the great Heather McDonald, who has done lots of wonderful work on this, insists we're ducking the real, the elephant in the room on this question, which is, you know, can we truly get back to colorblind meritocracy when it looks like because of the persistent educational and skills gaps across the races, especially with the given our history, the biggest elephant in the room between blacks and whites or other groups will persist that uh, this is going to be one of the hurdles. And it's something that prohibits us from talking frankly about this, because uh, given America's history, we're very guilt ridden and sensitive on that topic. Heather is right. She's written about this. Uh, I will just flag that for everyone. Um, and uh, we'll just want to thank you all for joining us. Uh, if you want to support Claremont's work, go to claremont.org slash donate. As I always joke, we don't really sell any widgets at Claremont. We're dependent on supporters like you all. So thank you. If you want to support <clears throat> uh, Bill's work, um, 
uh, go to legalinsurrection.com. Uh, it has a foundation and a C3 there to support their work and uh, check out all of our studies on these topics at dc.claremont.org or for in Bill's case, uh, criticalrace.org or uh, equalprotect.org. So uh, thank you, Scott. And thank you, Bill. And uh, I hope everyone enjoyed this. You'll get a follow-up email uh, where if you'd like uh, a recording in this video, we're happy to provide it. These are mostly insider videos for supporters of Claremont and friends. We don't really post them publicly. So we just ask that you uh, share them with friends and family, but, but uh, don't share them on Twitter. Uh, we like to preserve this somewhat bespoke experience for uh, so for all the people that help us make this work possible. So thank you, Bill. And thank you, Scott. And thank you all for joining. Thank Have you. a good evening. Take care. Thanks. Bye.